This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Here in September 2020, this podcast series is now speeding towards 15,000 downloads in 40 countries worldwide. Clearly, we tapped into a global hunger for ideas and stories from imaginative and innovative educators and education leaders engaging students across the Hawaiian Islands. In the middle of a pandemic, we pivoted and took this series virtual. I built a studio in my home on Oahu and physically distant guests call in via their mobile phones. In the last episode, I talked with Christina Ho, the Dean of Experiential Education and Community Programs at Le Jardin Academy and co-founder with a group of sixth graders of the Wild Kids Foundation. Today, I'll be talking with Dan Gaudiano, Academy Science Department Head at Punahou School. Dan has a BA in Geology from Colgate University and a Master of Arts in Teaching from the University of South Carolina, Columbia. Dan has written in scientific journals, authored scientific papers, been a coastal geologist, and a scientific researcher. He was the lead coordinator for a water conservation project in Hawaii and has been a curriculum resource teacher with an emphasis on technology integration. A number of my colleagues have mentioned Dan's seminal presentation on student stress at the 2019 Schools of the Future conference. Most of all, what you get from reviewing Dan's body of work so far is that he cares deeply about kids and learning. There is no doubt that he has a growth mindset and is continually developing his teaching practice. Dan called in from his classroom on the campus of Punahou School. And now, here is my conversation with Dan Gaudiano. Dan Gaudiano, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Josh. Thanks for inviting me. So, Dan, our format is called 10 Questions. So, um, over the next uh, hour, hour and a half here, I'm going to fire our 10 questions at you, and uh, you just knock them out of the park. All right, I'll do my best. Okay. So, Dan, I have indeed many questions for you, but let's take a minute here at the start to establish your genealogy, which is an important part of our process and culture here in Hawaii. This is the only part of the conversation we might call chronological. The rest will be topical. So where are you from? and Where did you go to high school? Which, you know, of course, is the most important question here in Hawaii. Um, And describe the learning walk that took you to Colgate University, to South Carolina, and to Hawaii, and to Punahou School. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey in a suburb of Philadelphia. I went to a public high school called Haddonfield Memorial High School. Uh, I had a pretty small graduating class of about 150 students. And um, I 
really enjoyed school there. I enjoyed the science program quite a bit. So I went to Colgate University, uh, majored in geology and did the pre-med route, uh, thinking that I was heading off to medical school. Uh, my father was a physician, and I was thinking that that was something that I also wanted to do. Uh, but after taking the MCAT and working in the hospital for a while, I decided that it wasn't the path that I wanted to to go on. Uh, it was instead um, geology and oceanography were really what I was curious about and most interested in studying. So I applied to a few graduate programs in geology and ocean sciences. University of South Carolina uh, had a great program and a lot of research going on, active research going on at the coast. Uh, so I took a trip about 700 miles to the south and uh, started living in South Carolina. There, I loved the research that I was doing. It was great work. I worked for a coastal engineering firm and uh, continued with my master's program there. I got a master's in science. And then I somehow kind of got linked up with the education program. I took a couple of classes that were about science education and realized that that was uh, a path that I wanted to pursue. Um, so as soon as I finished my master's in science, I jumped into a master's in teaching program. And I had a great time with that. Started teaching down in South Carolina in public schools there, a couple of public schools. And then I moved to Rhode Island a few years later and then taught there for three years at a public uh, middle and high school. Um, and then I moved to Hawaii in 2003. I started teaching at Midpac, uh, worked with Mark Hines and the whole crew there as they opened up uh, their new science and math and technology center. Mm. Uh, and then a, a year later, um, I moved to Punahou, and I've been at Punahou ever since. So this is year number 17 at Punahou School. Wow, fantastic. Um, what was it that had you moved to Hawaii? Like, what was that all about? Great question. Uh, my former wife went to Punahou School, and uh, we went to a, an alumni event in Boston where I met um, the principal at the time, Mike Walker, and um, he and I went to the same graduate school, and I was kind of uh, just walking around and not really knowing anyone, and I just we started talking, and Mike and I hit it off. We you know, both did graduate programs at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, and we just talked and talked and talked, and I met um, some other folks that were here. And uh, they, they very kindly said, hey, if you're ever interested in a job, let us know because we're always looking for, you know, inspired teachers. And I said, thank you so much for even considering that, but I'm never moving to Hawaii. Uh, a year later, I, uh, after a few winters in Rhode Island, I decided that it was time to try something different. Right. Winter, um, so winter we, will do that, right? Yes. Uh, it, was, it was actually it was the coldest winter in 30 years, uh, the 2002-2003 winter, and that was the deciding factor. So, so Dan, clearly you have a passion for science, which we're going to get into um, in a little bit here. But when do you remember when that science spark happened in your brain when you were like, I love science and I want to pursue science and maybe even teach in the scientific fields? You know, I, growing up, I didn't have any interest in teaching in the scientific field. I just knew that I liked the feeling of being in the lab and doing things where I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I can remember very specifically when I was maybe 15 years old in ninth grade, we were doing these labs that were just nonstop. I don't know how the teachers did as much prep as they did, but we did these nonstop labs uh, where the first day or two of school, ninth grade, I was in a new high school. I didn't know the students. It was kind of a new experience for me. And we're all of a sudden we're, we're breaking down wood into its components. You know, we're, we're distilling it to wood alcohol and char, and we're doing all these things and trying to figure out, like, what 
are the fundamental parts of wood, which I know sounds really basic. At the time, though, it was incredibly, I had no idea there was wood alcohol and wood, or that there were all these components that were making up this thing that I just never really thought of, but it was just, mm. in my head, it was just wood. And then I have to credit the people, the teachers that were in my high school, the science teachers specifically, were so dedicated to building investigation skills and data skills uh, and being curious and asking more questions and then going back and redoing it and saying like, well, if it didn't work well, then maybe come in tomorrow morning before school and try it again. This was my high school life, which might sound kind of silly, but it was, for me, it was a great environment. I met some friends who I'm still close with who, um, you know, we prescribed to the, the same philosophy that we learned and picked up in high school. Um, and that was, you know, just test Look at look for evidence and then retest when it doesn't go so well. So mm. that's when I kind of first got hooked on it. Um, and I probably would also like to credit my parents for instilling this. Like my parents were constantly saying, like, you know, they wouldn't answer my questions. I was like, what's going on here? And they were said, like, well, what do you think is going on here? It was a, mm. uh, it was kind of like living on a quiz show often. <laughs> right. That's that's awesome, Dan. So. Perfect segue. Um, we're going to go down a rabbit hole here right out of the gate. So bear with me, all right? Um, sure. You, you shared with me a scientific paper you co-authored in 2013 titled The Physical Condition of South Carolina Beaches, 1980 to 2010. So I confess it was pretty dense reading, but I read it. Oh, gosh. Um, I, I can't believe you read it. You read it. I was hoping I, maybe I, you would read the abstract. No, I, I read the whole thing. I had to skim a few parts where the, you know, talking about the evidence itself. Um, but the top of my head kind of blew off. So f go figure why this paper got me so fired up, Dan. But so I'm going to ask this question in two parts. So here's part one. So in 2010, what was the relative condition of South Carolina's beaches as compared to 1980, 20 years before? And what do we in Hawaii have to learn from the management or lack of management of South Carolina's coastal areas? Just like most places in the world, we have um, rising sea level in South Carolina that is kind of made kind of punctuated by large storms, which cause erosion. And so we have kind of a small erosion process punctuated by faster erosion processes on most beaches. And then we have a few beaches that are growing in size, um, mainly due to an excess of you know, sediment that comes in from rivers that gets kind of concentrated in a few places. So most areas on the South Carolina coast are eroding, and then some areas are accreting. Um, but then we look globally at sea level rise causing a retreat of our shorelines uh, worldwide, except for areas that are uh, you know, explained by glacial rebound. So what we can learn from South Carolina is that management really matters. They were really aggressive in the 1970s and 80s about doing setbacks um, and setting aside land as um, preservation areas that they don't manage at all. They are completely natural. You can't build on them. There's no roads. You can access them by boat, and that's it. And they've let them go, and they those are going under their kind of natural erosion and um, retreat where the barrier islands are moving towards the land. Um, but areas where we built hard structures like seawalls and homes, 
those are the areas that we're most concerned about. And that's what we see here on Hawaii, right? We see that areas that are built up have, you know, the people are concerned about it because their seawalls are being undercut or the beaches are rapidly going away. But just like areas all around the world, they go through cycles, right? So they have cycles where the beaches build up and cycles where the beaches get kind of taken away, seasonal cycles. But then if you layer on top of that a more um, decadal cycle or a decadal process where you have low sea level rise causing erosion and causing, you know, inundation of coastal areas. Mm. So I think that what we can learn from it is just management matters and setbacks matter and we shouldn't build hard structures at the beach. Mm. Um, sadly, we're already down that road and uh, we are just going to either have to retreat or pay the price of beach restoration on an annual basis, which can be obviously in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. Yeah, I think part of the reason why, it, you know, that this paper really struck me was that just a few weeks ago, there was a lengthy piece in the Honolulu Star Advertiser about Waimanalo and about, in fact, a property that's being developed for apparently President Obama and Michelle Obama, and that, um, you know, there, there are real serious coastal erosion issues there. Um, and I think it just made the connection. It was just so fascinating to read, you know, about what was going on in South Carolina and just thinking that, you know, that there are management issues that are kind of universal. So, so Dan, the, the, oh, yeah. the, second, the second part to this question is, like, when I read this paper, I was reminded of a, of a conversation I had back in 1997 with my history department chair at Punahou. His name was Mark Hannington. Um, and we talked about his ICE course, I-C-E, and about the idea of mile-wide, inch-deep learning versus post-hole learning. So what fired off in my brain was, was this. So it's in an integrated curriculum course where you and I and others are co-teaching, your science students are doing scientific writing, critical thinking, data-based analysis. My government kids would be studying the public policy implications of your findings in South Carolina. Another teacher's journalism students would be writing front page stories about shoreline erosion in the, you know, the Post and Courier, which is South Carolina's largest paper. And then another teacher's art students would be creating posters that inform South Carolina's beachgoers about the issues and so on and so forth. So my question, Dan, is about siloed learning. In, in what ways is Punahou moving towards integrated curriculums, which a lot of folks think is, you know, the truly authentic way to learn? Um, what, what are some great examples of integrated learning that are possible for other educators to think about and try? I think it comes down to course development and design. I don't think that, um, I think that if you have a solid course that has that built in, I think that is going to be key to our, our future learning. Like, I think that moving forward with classes in the science department, I, my hope is that they can be kind of modeled after an approach where you have not just the science, but you're also looking at policy, you're looking at kind of a whole a full integration. We do have a number of classes that are kind of moving towards that direction that are uh, kind of transdisciplinary classes. You know, we have a, a Hawaiian voyaging class where they learn the science and physics around, you know, building the, um, the Hawaiian canoe, the sail the sailing canoe, um, and they also, um, you know, they learn a lot of the social studies. So I think that that class gets both dual, it gets dual credit for social studies and for science. Uh, we also have some classes that are called uh, GSD, the Global Sustainable Development 
classes that are also transdisciplinary. I think they're science and social studies also. Um, so that's, you know, the hope is that we can have science classes that are going to have those components built in. Um, if the challenge is getting the depth of your science mm, right. and then connecting it really well. I think that I think I'm very biased in this. I'll just kind of point out my own biases. Like I teach this class called AP, AP Environmental Science. Mm. And that class for me is the most um, interdisciplinary pure science class that we have where it's constantly connected to, um, you know, geopolitical issues that students have to weigh in on uh, where there aren't any clear answers, but you have to go and dive into the science really deeply to see what is driving the policy and how those are going to impact human beings on the planet. Mm. So my hope is that we can get to a place where all science classes are really connecting uh, to global issues that have you know relevance in students' lives. I mm. think that the model to do transdisciplinary classes is a good one. I think we're learning how to do that better and better every year. Mm. So what are your thoughts generally about this debate? Uh, I guess it's the best way to call it up, but you know, the debate between mile wide, inch deep and, and post holing. And I, I just, I remember Dan, this conversation with Mark Hannington, I think that he had proposed a history course called 1908 and it was going to be, you know, a a twenty mile deep dive into the year nineteen oh eight, and it and it really caused a lot of conversation, to put it mildly, on Punahou's mm-hmm. campus. You know, what are your what are your thoughts about that? You know, I love the idea of deep dives. What I don't love is the the, the missing of so much else that could be explored, and then you end up with someone who. You know, they did, they love, they, they were super into 1908. That's awesome. I just would hope that they would also get to 1945, um, and 1979, other critical years that I just, I worry that if we go too deep in one topic, mm. then you might miss out. Like you might, you might have a person who is completely, you know, I just think about science in general. Right? So if we do, uh, chemistry so deep, medical chemistry, environmental chemistry, we have, you know, these very specifics, but then they don't do any, uh, maybe they don't do enough biology or they don't do enough ecology. Then we have, then we graduate students who are scientifically literate in chemistry, but not scientifically literate in right. other sciences. And they might lack the ability to apply. I mean, the hope is right with a, a super deep curriculum that they're able to apply those skills to hmm. new areas of learning. Yeah. That's my, so... no, go ahead. Go ahead. My worry would be that they just don't have exposure to the other areas. So what right. I hope, that, that we move to is, is something that is expansive where they have, they get a broad sense of topics, but then you take these deep, deep dives into certain areas of focus for the class. Right. So that they're not just, you know, taking 1908 apart, you know, you know, month by month or week by week, but they're, I mean, my, my, my philosophy is that you have to have a broad view and then you have to be able to dive deep within mm. that broad view Mm. That, that's my particular bend on it. Right. Wow. That's, it's, it's so interesting. I love the conversation. It's a, it's a very, um, it's a rich conversation, uh, that we can have with fellow educators about these kinds of things. I, I think it just fires off a lot of sparks in people and people and gets them thinking about their own particular practice and their philosophy of education. 
Um, so Dan, the, the Voyaging Canoe Hokulea's worldwide voyage took place between 2013 and 2019. And the, mm-hmm. Hawaiian, the Hawaiian name for the voyage, uh, Malama Honua, means to care for our earth. So the Malama Honua sail plan included more than 150 ports, 18 nations, eight UNESCO marine world heritage sites, engaging local communities, practicing how to live sustainably. So you were part of the trip that saw the Hokulea sail in American Samoa and Samoa. So what, what was your role and your educational outreach and what were the highlights of that time for you? You know, I forget, I forgot that I went on that trip until you just mentioned it. Like I hadn't thought about it in a while. It was such an incredible experience. Uh, the educational group that went uh, to Samoa, I think it was 2014, it was a, a group of, I think, six of us, uh, wide variety backgrounds. Dave Strang and I, Dave, uh, Dave is another science department member. We went there with um, a few other educators who kind of focused on helping out with whatever we could in terms of educational research, getting the word out to the community. So that process was super exciting. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen. We got there and we had kind of a skeleton plan. And our plan was to reach out to as many schools, uh, work with teachers, uh, work with local museums and community groups. And that's what we did. And it was such an incredible experience. I mean, some of our best connections were so happenstance. Uh, where I went, I would go walking early in the morning and I, I stumbled upon some schools and I would just knock on their door and, and introduce myself to the, uh, the principal. And I would just say, Hey, you know, here's what we're doing. Is there any interest if we came in and worked with your students about what's going on? And then from there, we invited them to a community outreach day at the, there was a, a marine science center in American Samoa. I forget the name of it, but it was, uh, it was great. So we would try to work with schools. And then we would work with community organizations that the, you know, some of the best parts were we got to work with the crew once they arrived and we got to be part of the ceremony when they came on shore. So the hope was we would work with the crew, work with the community groups and work with the students to help spread the word about um, environmental stewardship of our oceans and of our land. Um, and that was, I would say, just one of the, the highlights of uh, you know, my educational career, like going there and, and being part of this incredible mission. Um, I felt like we did good work and I all, for sure felt like we could have done a lot more. Um, it was just, it, it was very, um, you know, just exciting and also a little bit like, okay, what's next? What's going to, what are we going to do next with this? And, um, and then I felt like it was a nice connection back to the classes that we had taught back here. I felt like we had, kind of an enriched curriculum uh, because of that. So it was kind of a connection in Samoa and American Samoa. And then what we did was we video conference back with my classes um, and then also with the other, the other teachers did the same. Um, and then we kind of brought back those lessons to our students. And, you know, to this day, it's still informed by practice uh, when we're learning about vector-borne diseases like dengue fever, which was affecting the islands pretty dramatically at the time. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's so amazing. So... So it sounds like, you know, the way that it worked with Malama Honua was that there was sort of a, a, a department, if you will, within the organization that was looking at the messages, the themes, the educational outcomes. And then there were these outposts along the way where educators mm-hmm. were given the opportunity to sort of carry out the plan to lay the groundwork before the crew arrived. Am I, am I getting that right? 
Yeah, that's right. And then uh, so a few folks would come with the advance uh, prior to the crew arriving, um, and then um, and then the crew would stay. I think I want to say they stayed a week, roughly, on American Samoa, kind of doing repairs to the boat and kind of getting it all set and stored up for the next leg of the journey. Mm-hmm. And you had a chance to sail on the canoe. Well, we were scheduled to sail, and then uh, the winds were very, very, very strong, and the sea state was the point where uh, I know Thompson just made the call, uh, just the absolute right call. We were all excited and nervous to go, uh, but then we they, they just made the call that it wasn't safe enough for – I'm a novice sailor for sure. Um, it wasn't safe enough for us to go on the boat mm. um, on the next part of the crossing. So we, we, we stayed – uh, there and then we flew to the next port, which was um, you know Independent Samoa, which is just kind of a, a very short plane ride from American Samoa. Wow! So so to be continued. Then it sounds like there will be there, yeah. will, there will be some chance in the future um, to be able to. That'd be great. You know, th- th- we did have teachers that went um, to New Zealand, South Africa, all around the world as they made different stops, and I think that they got better and better at having their educational outreach. Um, you know, we were the first leg, we were the first group that went, uh, we were the kind of the, the test team to see how this would go. And then every group after that, that went kind of built on, uh, learned from our failures and, and, and built on our successes. And that, that was, I think the model that they, uh, they tried is just like, we're going to send people and we're going to keep on learning and keep on revising how we do it. Yeah, that's marvelous. So Dan, you are the Punahou School capstone task force or you are on that task force. Do I have that right? I wanted to make sure. Yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. That's, yeah. uh, we had about a year of, well, three quarters of a year of, of meetings and planning about how to revise capstone. Mm. So here's, here's my question. I've been talking a lot with Hawaii Preparatory Academy's Aaron Shorn about his capstone program there at Hawaii Prep on Hawaii Island. So I actually didn't know what the word capstone meant. So I looked it up. Um, so Webster's defines a capstone as a, a large flat stone forming a roof over the chamber of a megalithic tomb. Um, so I want to, I want to come at this idea of capstone slightly different, uh, than most of our listeners would expect. So let's say hypothetically, Dan, I'm the principal at a large public middle school in Hawaii, mm. on Oahu, on the west side of Oahu. And I'm interested in capstone projects and would like to know more from you about what they are, what their educational value is, and what steps I would need to, to take to get my middle school faculty thinking about the idea. In other words, Dan, you're my new capstone advisor, and this is our first conversation. Oh gosh, uh, that's a big question. Capstone, <laughs> yeah. Capstone classes are, uh, you know, this. You, you nailed it. The, you know, it's this top of the structure piece of education that is supposed to tie many parts together and allow the structure to kind of look fully formed and be fully formed. Um, I think that you know we do capstone projects. And if you do them in eighth grade, you could do them in 12th grade, you could do them in college and in graduate school. I actually, they, they, they do them at many, many levels. Um, and I think that you have to take the approach that capstone classes have to be kind of age and discipline and kind of maturity and pandemic 
related, right? You have to take them where they are, like what is possible at that okay. time. Um, so a capstone project for eighth grade, I would ask, you know, what are the themes that you are hoping to address? I would start with a, a list of questions, like what are your desired outcomes for mm-hmm. this program? What are your, what are your hopes for students in terms of growth? Um, what are your hopes to connect with the community with these projects? Um, and then what are, you know, what are reasonable expectations for students to conduct a, um, a capstone project? Like what are, what's, what's reasonable and what's manageable and what allows for the flexibility for students to really step out of, you know, their area of comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, my son is actually in eighth grade. And so I'm thinking about what, what kind of, the, of projects he might want to work on. And it is a challenge, but it's a really good challenge to think about how an eighth grader would intersect with a community need or a community issue that would have significance. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to put together projects that are actually meaningful to the community. It can have meaning to the class, it can have meaning to the students, but what I try to look for is projects that are meaningful, not just to the educational institution or that individual, but also have meaning outside. And those are hard to come by. Like those are, those are tough. That's what we're always reaching for with our capstone projects. So my advice would be build community partnerships um, as fast as you can. Um, and people that where there's an actual need, uh, you say like, you know, like, oh, we're, we're here to help you. <laughs> That's like the, the least um, effective way to go. Where if you address an organization like, oh, guess what? We're here to help. I, I take the approach of like, hey, do you need assistance? How can we help you? Like, so getting students and faculty to start thinking about how to ask the question, what do you need? Like, what are your current needs? Like, no matter how minor they are or how... Um, unglamorous they are. Those mm-hmm. are the, that's the work that needs to get done. So mm-hmm. I would say build community relationships um, where you can, and then find out what they need. Uh, maybe it's the testing. Uh, you know, there are, there's community groups that, that are in need of beta testers for, um, for apps, or there's community need for people to uh, run through educational systems that might, they might be trying out with their classes in the next semester. There's a wide range of, of, actual community needs where it's not a manufactured need, it's an actual need. So that would be my, my mm. biggest advice and my, my deepest question to them. Yeah, that's so interesting, Dan. My, I, I wrote my master's thesis on service learning um, and, mm. and it was an area of interest, still is, um, you know, going way, way back. And I, I remember thinking a lot about, you know, there was, a, there was a grand argument underway within the service learning community about the difference between service learning and community service. And you know that the, the the core of that argument was that within service learning you have to you have to approach the community and find out what the community is thinking about you can't go just thinking that you're you're bringing some sort of gift to them it, it generally mm-hmm. won't be received well um, and so you really have to get to know them you have to get to know their needs and it sounds like that's what you're you're telling me here is that I have to begin to really know what's going on in my community. And so I guess my question around that is like, to what extent do I just directly involve my middle school students in finding out what's going on in the community so that they can be part of that process of figuring out, you know, what's out there and what are, what are some opportunities to work on things with the community? 
that's that's actually my favorite approach where you start off by modeling what is possible, what's out there. So you take your students to a community event and you get them to interact with the community leaders who are doing the hard work. Mm. And then you have them interview people. You do practice interviews in class. You have them interview each other. You have them do other, interview other adults. And then you go through that process of like, okay, what does that look like on the ground at the place that's actually doing current service? And that, I think, is going to be one of the best things that you can do is starting off like with exactly that, Josh, I think just modeling first mm-hmm. and then having students ask questions from there. It's very similar to the scientific process, right, where uh, a class will do several labs that are very much like do this, this, this. It's very prescribed. And then after the second time or maybe the third time, they say, okay, guess what? Here's your goal. Go figure this out. Come mm-hmm. up with a procedure. Come up with what you want to measure. How are you going to do it? So the idea of like setting them up with some examples of what this looks like, they might take it and run in the same direction, or they might take it and run in a very, very different direction. And it's, it provides support for kids who struggle with the flexibility. Um, meaning like when you tell a student, like you can do a project on whatever you want, that sounds wonderful, right? And then yeah, like, that sounds so empowering, but it's actually overwhelming. overwhelming. You know, I'm sure right. you know about mm-hmm. the paradox of choice, right? Where, when you tell someone like, oh, you can do anything you want, you can choose from 36 types of jelly at the store, people are paralyzed by this. And so they, if you, but if you give them a model and you kind of narrow things down a little bit, you can provide them with flexibility and you can provide them with support so they don't feel that paralysis. Mm, that's super interesting. Very, very cool. So, hey, listeners, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Dan Gaudiano is the department head for Punahou School's Academy Science Program, which has 23 science faculty. Punahou is an independent school with 3,700 students, K-12, located in Honolulu on the island of Oahu. So, Dan, continuing on with, with the capstone thing, you are the capstone travel coordinating or you're on the the capstone travel coordinating team for Punahou. And you mentioned in your resume student trips to Yellowstone, to Alaska, the Grand Canyon. So in my last episode, Dan, I talked with Desjardins Academy's Christina Ho about her Wild Kids Foundation and program, which takes kids to the wilds of Montana for completely unstructured time. And we talked about, mm-hmm. Christina and I talked at length about structured versus unstructured time, about Posse Salberg's new book about play and the value of both. So this feels like the perfect moment to have you talk about your presentation at last October's Schools of the Future conference titled Lowering Stress, Raising Expectations. So what was that presentation, Dan, and what, what was it all about? Well, I just need to go back just a, a couple of seconds. Um, I, I I have taken a lot of trips uh, with Capstone. We teach a class called Capstone Science, and we have run it in Alaska. I, I took students to Alaska, and the, the trip is also run to Iceland. It was supposed to go to Thailand for a medical mission this year, um, but I don't. Um, I, I'm on, I am on the, ta- the Capstone task force, but I'm not currently on any type of a, mm. a travel committee. I do a, a good deal of student travel mm. through our G-Term program and and then pre- uh, previously with this, just the science department, we would run science okay. trips. Um, but my philosophy on that is, is very, very much that you need to immerse students 
and faculty in those experiences that allow for unstructured time. Um, I, I, you know, you were, you were mentioning Wildcraft before. I had actually a student, um, his name was Isaac Miller, who traveled with me to uh, the Grand Canyon and to the desert Southwest two years ago. And he talked about the Wildcraft as being a formative experience in his life. And it, it just, it brought me such joy to see him bring that to the trip. Um, you know, this student is a great kid. Um, and he just, he just excelled and stepped up in every way, socially, emotionally, scientifically, every way you can imagine um, on this trip to the Grand Canyon where, you know, he got to, to be really his best self. And sometimes it takes moving students into areas where they're uncomfortable, where it's unfamiliar, um, and asking them to step up in that context. And they really often do, you know, whether that's like interviewing elders in a Klingit tribe in Juneau or, Mm -hmm. you know, talking with local experts about fire ecology um, outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, You know, it just taking those students there, giving them structured and unstructured time for sure um, is massively uh, productive for kids. Uh, We we took students to the Grand Tetons and, we had some downtime and all of a sudden we had the students who were like, Mr. G, can we go snowshoeing right now? Can we climb up this block? We want to see what's going on out there. Like, let's do it. And those moments are just incredibly adventurous, but they're also so important to build students' confidence and also curiosity about whatever is going on at that moment. That's so different from the conditions mm-hmm. that we have here in Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it can happen here. I think you know, whenever we've taken students, out to, you know, local trips um, here right on Oahu or whether we go to the Big Island, you can have those experiences here when you take students out. It's, it is a, a mammoth effort and the endeavor that, that goes into it is, is huge, but the rewards are very rich. Um, I have a travel partner who I, I've been traveling with for more than a decade. Her name is Tiffany Koch. She's our physics and astronomy teacher. And we put together these trips. Uh, we've, we've done it for a long time and you know, we're always so overwhelmed with how much work they are. But on the way back on the flights, we're always planning our next trip because we have this uh, this very incredibly rewarding feeling that we've done something good for kids that is life, can be life-changing. Um, and so, you know, the, the reward is just mammoth. And the idea of, of free time in that context is, is actually one of the most valuable things that we can provide to students. Mm, Right, right. It's so interesting, Dan, how unstructured time can be incredibly uncomfortable. And in the, in the discomfort, there is learning as you, you try to figure out who you are and and how are you existing in this moment? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So then if we come back out of the unstructured into the structured, um, what was this presentation that you did at Schools of the Future about stress? Josh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I'm sorry. I, I kind of I got caught up in <laughs> discussing unstructured time uh, and and uh, and structured time on these trips. Right. The trips have. I just. I. I. You know. I. I will stop talking about the trips, uh, and and kind of move to the Schools of the Future. The Schools of the Future presentation was. Um, I just, I wanted to test a lot of the assumptions that I have and other teachers have about how we go about trying to lower stress for students. We know that students are stressed. We, we've done 
countless, you know, local, national, state-level surveys to, to know that students feel stressed in high school for sure. Um, what I want to look at is what do we do to mitigate that stress? And then of the things that we do, what actually helps students? Or what do we, what can students tell us about our techniques, whether they're useful for them or not useful for them? So I talked to, I, I want to say, between 15 and 20 teachers, um, interviews, um, email responses about what teachers do to try to lower stress in the classroom. And I had a wide, wide variety of responses. And so what I did was I bucketed those and then put them out to students. And I created a, just a simple Google form of saying like, Hey, this is what, um, this is what, you know, your teacher, your social studies teacher does. Is this effective? Um, how effective is it? And I kind of rated it on a scale from like, like not effective to highly effective at reducing stress. Um, and the, of course, the idea is not to reduce all stress. There is motivating stress that mm -hmm. is um, totally appropriate and fine that we all feel when we need to get something done. Right. But what we want to do is try to avoid the, uh, the paralyzing stress uh, where students feel overwhelmed and they can't make forward progress. So we tried to kind of parse that out. Um, and we found that the there were very easy techniques that teachers could do that are helpful. Some of them revolve around just calendars, like helping students plan out what things are coming up when, and then providing some level of flexibility. Say that, you know, if you look at a student's calendar and we see that most of the class has, say, a social studies paper due on a certain day, being a flexible teacher and saying like, oh, why don't we have our test the day after or the day, you know, two days after. And so we would try to, um, you know, look at what we people were doing and what was effective and not effective. And I don't know if you remember any of the data, Josh, but I think the most effective thing was having a teacher that is aware of student stress is one of the yep. highest rated yep. things that can be done. And to me, that speaks to the relationship piece uh, that the teachers know and have always known is that relationship is one of the most important things that you mm. have going for you in the classroom. Mm. Um, but then, of course, being aware is one thing and then being able to make small adjustments in your classroom that help alleviate pressure points for students. Um, you know, we do this for, for adults all the time, right? We have, we have certain things that kind of pile up and we say, oh, why don't we spread that out a little bit? We have flexibility. So we, mm. at least my philosophy is we should provide that same flexibility to students mm. um, trying to move pressure points around where we can so that it kind of alleviates some of that stress. So Dan, I, I, I want to challenge you here for a second, if you don't mind, sure. um, because I, I did, I went through your presentation in, in, in detail and I think my challenge comes from an idea actually shared with me by Ted Dintersmith, who's the executive producer of most likely to succeed and also the author of what school could be. And he's the inspiration for this podcast. So he talks about these kinds of mitigations as you know, as the same as the, you know, the, the pioneers in their covered wagons, putting a cushion down on the seat, um, that basically what we're doing is putting band-aids like yoga and meditation before tests on top of a much larger systemic issue, which is an overwhelming amount of work and pretty irrelevant. Well, I shouldn't say that tests that have, have, are no longer, at least according to many studies, you know, relevant to student learning. So I guess my challenge is, you know, are, are we spending time creating these band-aids or are we actually looking at the, the real core issues here? 
I think if you have meaningful work that students should be working on, and you can define that however you wish, it's going to cause some stress for students. It could be the most productive, meaningful work that any educator around the world would say, yes, that has meaning that's not a, uh, that's not a trivial task. It doesn't have to be a test or a quiz. It could be something that is, you know, like I said, like the most meaningful capstone project that it's going to create stress for students. And that stress can be overwhelming. And I think that, I think it's our responsibility to look at how we can mitigate that and teach them practices that are going to be helpful. I would push back that like anything that's worth doing is going to cause you some level of stress, whether it's writing a research paper, doing independent research, it's going to be stressful. And we have to come up with ways that are going to help us manage that stress. I'm sure that you love your job and I imagine that there are parts of it that are stressful at times and you have to come up with ways to, to mitigate that and to work with it and to work around it and have people that are aware and supportive of that endeavor are critical. And Mm. I think that having a caring community around you Mm. is, is paramount and being aware of those things. I don't think that is a bandaid at all. I think it's, I think it's what we hope for in a community when Mm. we're under stress together that this is how we come together and work on those things. It's being flexible. It's being caring. It's keeping standards really high for the work, but it's also saying like, Hey, you're a human being. We can work with you on these things. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think yoga and meditation are part of that solution. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't disagree that that high stakes testing are probably not a great way to make tons of student progress. Um, I think that every challenge, every rigorous endeavor is going to cause some level of stress on students. Mm. And that stress is the same stress that, that, you know, you feel putting together a podcast or I feel putting together a lesson or working with the faculty. And so I, I'm always looking for ways to mitigate that stress, whether it's exercise or a caring uh, colleague who I call up and, 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 you know, they'll give me some advice on it. Right. So, right. you know, I, I understand, I understand the point that, that the, that there might be a, a fundamental concern about the levels of work that students have. I definitely understand that. Mm. Um, I understand. I also understand that even if you reduce that level to like one class, there's going to be, um, you know, a good deal of stress. Like I teach this class called capstone science over the summer. The students have one class to take and that class I guarantee causes them some stress. Mm. Um, I, because they have to pick a project or they have to, they have to pick something that they want to work on. And they say, Mr. G, this is really stressful. I've never been asked to come up with my own project before. This is a really big endeavor. This is stressful. And this is their only class, right? And this is the only thing they've got to focus on. And they get to choose what they want to do. It's got a lot of the hallmarks of what we consider a, Mm. um, you know, kind of a relevant curriculum. Uh, And it can be stressful. And so we have to figure out ways to help students through that. Yeah, fair point, Dan. And and again, I just I want to emphasize something that you said a little bit earlier that really jumped out at me when I was, you know, working my way through your PowerPoint of your presentation is that you're right. It's that relationship with a trusting adult or a group of trusting adults that's so critical to kids um, in terms of navigating their life. And that's a lifelong thing anyway. Um, you need mm-hmm. that. You just need that as a human being. You need trusting people around you that can be a network to 
to help you work your way through things. So absolutely, fair, fair point. Hey, everyone, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Dan Gaudiano. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we are with Dan Gaudiano, a science teacher and science department head at Punahou School. So, Dan, I want to talk about design thinking. You've been through a Stanford University D School boot camp, and you did some design thinking training at Punahou School. So here's a two-part question. So part okay. one, part one is, what is your conception of design thinking? You know, I would have to say that going through the design thinking process reminded me so much of the scientific process that it almost felt like the DT folks were just adopting what scientists do or have done for uh, quite a while, uh, (laughs) where, you know, you, you observe, you ask questions, you kind of drop your assumptions, you try to collect lots of unbiased data. Um, you know, and then you, you prototype and you try different things, you test out things, you know, you start off with a kind of a low res model and then you kind of build up from there to gather your insights. I, I love the DC process probably because it aligns so much with the scientific process. Um, so looking at it to me, it, it requires me and everyone that works with it to drop a lot of your own assumptions, which I love. And I love trying to take in information as a pure learner and just saying like, you know what, I don't know anything about this process and I am going to just dive in as a complete novice and really listen. That was one of my favorite parts of it where you have to, 
you know, ask deep questions and just shut up and just listen to what people are telling you about whatever is going on. And then from there, you can come up with some recommendations or ideas to go forward. Um, we did one here. We we're trying to redesign uh, some of our uh, learning strategies and um, spaces, uses around uh, Punahou. And we talked to teachers. We talked to students. We talked to parents. And we had a team of teachers and adults who were doing this. Um, and it was, I'm sorry, teachers and students who were doing this. And it was you know, this process where we got to try to drop all of our own pre-existing ideas and assumptions, just like a scientist kind of has to with a double-blinded study, right? Where you don't know, you don't know any of the conditions that are kind of being set up so you can look at the data objectively. Hmm. And then we kind of came together and, you know, bucketed all the, of the post-its. Josh, I'm sure you've done the, yep. the bucketing process where it's, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's really fun. And then it's really challenging to come up with your insights uh, that kind of drive you forward to the next level of action. And, and right. yeah, the, the whole process for me is very reminiscent of running a scientific hmm. uh, experiment where you don't know the answer and you're trying to be as unbiased as possible. Right. So here's, here's the second part then to the question, which is that, you know, I worry, Dan, that we have history, art, science, physical education, and other subject teachers going to or being sent to design thinking boot camps, and they come back with no idea how to implement it into their teaching and learning, which is not really the point of these boot camps in the first place. So <clears throat> how do we infuse the designer's mindset, which is the point of these boot camps? And I, and I see your alignment with science for sure. How do, how do we infuse the designer's mindset into learning and can that even work in our current pretty siloed way of teaching subjects, at least at the high school level? Well, I'm thinking about the class, uh, the capstone class that I teach that we, we do infuse a lot of, you know, that, that the capstone class is very interdisciplinary. Even though it's housed in social studies, it has a lot of connection to other topics uh, and other departments. Um, and we, I think that's the, one of the best places where it does infuse itself uh, that's outside of science where students have to investigate an issue and use the design process to come up with something that's going to be helpful. We don't go through the whole DP process in that class, or at least I don't. I, mean, I imagine that some other teachers might. But using the design thinking principles in that class has been incredibly helpful when we go to try to tackle an issue together as a group or when students go out on their own to do their own independent capstone project. Um, I, yeah, we went to this, we went to the boot camp, and it was not geared towards educators for sure. Um, I think the, the the few of us that went saw the immediate connection to your classroom, how this could be implemented to help students get to the next level of thinking, of critical thinking, and also empathy and compassion right. of really listening to others. Um, where you, if you have a, let's say their students are studying a topic um, about agriculture in a social studies class, you know, having them actually go out and talk to people who are involved with farming on people who are working there and visiting these places and trying to make observations and trying to gather multiple perspectives. I think that's where it integrates so seamlessly mm -hmm. in classes like that. I mean, it does, it does obviously within science classes uh, when you're thinking about experimentation or about like trying to 
look at energy efficiency, um, you're just trying to talk to the stakeholders, that those, those types of connections are pretty easy to make, but they weren't things that were you know, super crystal clear yeah. in the whole DT training boot camp and then the kind of the related work that we did with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. not sure if I answered your question. Can you ask me a follow-up question on it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You I, you know, I'm just thinking like, if, let's say that I meet you, Dan, and we're, we're having a beer together and I'm a history teacher and I, I taught history for eight years at La Pietra High School for Girls. So let's say, you know, I learned that you've been through, uh, you know, a DT boot camp, and I also went through one as well. And I'm struggling, you know, to even think about how design thinking could be a part of my history class. You see, that's where the dilemma, hmm. I think, comes in. Hmm. I, well, I mean, I just think of it as a perfect match with, with projects, with, you hmm. know, student-driven projects that are theme-related to whatever topic that you are charged to uh, make sure that the student's are going to be working on. Um, I, you know, I think that's the key right there is that if, if I am doing projects, uh, I can make that connection. If I'm not doing projects, I'm not seeing what the connection is at all. Mm -hmm. Well, Josh, I'm going to ask you, like, do you think that most schools and classes are not doing uh, at least a decent level of PDL or do you feel like it's, it's, it's almost all just straight content. I mean, what, what's your impression of the kind of the state of the, the state of the classroom today? I'm stoked that you asked me that question. Um, Dan, I, I am filled with hope in this particular moment here and the end of the summer of 2020 that here in Hawaii, across the Hawaiian Islands, public, private, and charter, we are seeing an advancement of project-based learning like nothing I've ever seen in my entire life of paying attention to education, and that goes back three decades. I'm, I'm really hopeful. And I think that there are some fantastic organizations out there like Kupuho Academy out of Mid-Pacific and PBL Works, which has a really strong local component to it. And, and you know, some of the remarkable professional development, even that came out of Punahou, I remember, uh, you know, the lab school at Punahou was a very formi- <laughs> formative thing for me when I was teaching at La Pietra. It helped me to develop my sense of project. So my, my sense right now is I'm very hopeful. And, but we're not there yet. We're not even close yet. And, but we're getting there. We're, we're moving along and it just feels good. So if, if I'm right about that, then the, these design thinking boot camps that are being done by Oceanet, by Ian Kitajima at Oceanet and, um, and have been going on for years actually have the potential to really get the kids more engaged because of the ways that you have linked it, for example, in science, you know, that process of empathy and of, of, of collecting good data and, and building prototypes and testing those prototypes and things like that, you know, then, then we've really got something that can elevate student engagement. And that's the hope, you know, I, we have right now in distance learning, we, we sent them home with a lot of classes sent them home with supplies for, to do, you know, home labs. And we're working on, uh, you know, revisions for, you know, if we have to, if the students have to be doing things at home in the future, we're, we're looking at what we can send home that's going to allow for maximum flexibility without, without, you know, sending students to go do things where they can't do, you know, they can't, right. they can't go outside to do certain things because of the, you know, the, the, the ever-changing stay-at-home orders. And I, I've actually been inspired by the work that my students are doing 
um, with really simple, simple supplies. And I, I love that we give them the opportunity to say, test what you think might be really interesting to test. And we're doing it you know, around one, around two. Around one is still with lots of great failure. Mm-hmm. And around two, we're going to hope that it gets better. And, um, you know, I just, I, I see a lot of, a lot more progress at the moment with my current students than I have seen because they have, like, they're trapped at home and we've, we've provided them with some small supplies to do these experiments. Right. And I just, we just had um, open house, which is like our parent night. And I got to meet with a whole bunch of the parents. And so many of them have said that they're really glad to have these, you know, small experiments going on. They're just, just, they're just very simple. We give them sweet potato cuttings uh, to do a controlled experiment, you know, change the variables. They grow hydroponically really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they could, they could pick what they wanted to test, whether it was changing the pH, or changing the turbidity, or changing a lot of the conditions. And then they're collecting data. And so they're, they're going through the scientific process. But they're doing it on their terms, in their oftentimes in their own bedroom, right. uh, and they're taking they're taking lots of of data, um, and you know it's it's I would say a good win right now, and yep. we're looking to see how we can you know amp it up uh, for this next mm. uh, next round, and so anyway, I do I do see the the potential right now to for students to do some good at home work, right. um, but at the same time I'm. I am always concerned about how much stress this might bring to a family who might be living yeah. in a very small apartment. Uh, I don't want them to ever feel like they're making a, a you know, mess in their, their kitchen and they have to share with, you know, four people. And it's just, yeah. anyway, there's lots of complexity to it, but I, I would say that we're having some, some, Real progress. some small successes at the moment. And All I right. feel pretty good about it. So actually, Dan, that's a perfect segue to where I was about to go, which is, you know, um, up to now, we have, you and I have not addressed COVID-19 educational issues directly. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of by design. Sometimes I feel like we are awash in a thousand opinions and contentions across so many media platforms. And so much of it has become almost like white noise at this point. But Suzanne Sato, a Punahou alum, wrote a piece in the Punahou Bulletin about some of the faculty in your science department. So tell us or talk to us about some examples with your faculty of super engaging distance learning going on in your department's courses. Oh, goodness. There's actually There's many. too many <laughs> to, 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 to go well into, but I would, I would just say like I, the chemistry uh, so department, all of the chemistry levels uh, this summer sent home these like bags of supplies um and we they did summer school they were doing very very safe labs at home that involved only household chemicals like vinegar baking soda salt like very very safe things um that can all go down the drain very easily but we provided them with a very small balance uh plastic graduated cylinders so they were able to do a lot of investigation at home um, that was, I think, in some ways, really great. Every kid had their own lab set up, so they were all collecting their own data, and they would come together in teams and discuss it to figure out what was going on. Mm. Um, biology, they were doing observational field studies where they had where they were looking at webcams of places, I think in Honolulu Zoo and other places where they were, looking, they were trying to track animal behavior for freshman biology. Uh, there are, I gosh, in environmental science, the students were uh, doing experiments looking at um, albedo and ice melting rates to uh, to model climate change on a home level, mm. uh, and not always with the, the 
the best results, but the experimentation part was the biggest part of the process. Um, AP Bio is sending home these super fast growing plants, are actually called fast plants to study plant genetics. Uh, there's just such a wide range of uh, of experiments that are going on. Uh, we have uh, teachers who took students on a virtual field trip to their um, They've got some teachers have well. This one teacher has an extremely expensive backyard garden and um, aquaponics system, and students would engage with him, and they would say, "Oh, can you walk over there? Can you show us this?" And they wow. would ask, you know, these questions. And he's copying through his, um, you know, it's a very very small farm, like a backyard, a large backyard, and the students are able to kind of ask questions and engage there. And we even, you know, we had people. Um, who brought in guest speakers. And it's actually, that's one of the biggest wins is that we're able to um, bring mm-hmm. in guest speakers and have people from any place in the world. We have you know, a, a vaccine researcher who's currently working on a, um, you know, the COVID vaccine who video conferenced in from Missouri. We had people from NASA, from JPL. Uh, we had doctors Skyping in from all over. It was, you know, there are... Hmm. There are these really cool things that we can do now that we couldn't do right. as easily before. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's such a fascinating yeah. silver lining to this moment is that suddenly we have access to people where the access was there before. We just weren't, you know, being prompted in the way that we are now to to connect with those mm-hmm. people. There were spectacular examples, but not at the scale that it's happening right now. And what I love about that idea, Dan, is that it feels like there's a much greater number of people now who are are, are individuals we could call part of the greater education community because we're reaching out to them in these moments like you describe. And it means that there are more people involved in in thinking about education because they've been invited into the process you know, and it, albeit via Zoom, but hopefully, you know, in the years to come, that that ethos will will continue, will perpetuate itself. I hope so. You know, there have been some wins that have been shocking. Uh, you know, I, I really have been surprised at how well some of the video conferences have gone. Of course, some of them go poorly, you know, where you have a, yeah. a, 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 a professor um, who just wants to speak the whole time and doesn't really want to engage with students. And then you have other folks who ask the students questions and then leaves time for them to ask questions. It, it was, uh, we've had some, some shocking su- surprise um, wins with it. So mm. I'm hopeful that they, that will continue for sure. That's fantastic. So Dan, there are a lot of conversations going on in every sector of education, public, private, charter, about CBL, um, competency-based learning. And there are conversations going on around something also called, or something called mastery transcripts. So I'm, I'm aware that Punahou has been working to develop competency-based learning, but the road has been a bit bumpy at times. So what is CBL and why is Punahou infusing its constructs into some courses? What's behind that? I think the idea is to create systems that deepen learning and also take the focus away from grading and to student progress around key competencies that are transdisciplinary. So the idea is that instead of having a very specific objective, say in chemistry, they're going to learn stoichiometry. They have questions about quantitative analysis and about um, critical thinking or about even curiosity. 
And so the hope is that students will gain competency um, and some level of mastery in these areas that are kind of larger than just one specific discipline. So there are no like very specific, like say biology competencies, but then what we are able to do is we're able to construct these kind of subsets that are more specific to biology that would help students understand what the learning objectives are. So one of the key things that we're hoping for is transparency of what the learning outcomes are going to be. And it's not just like students will know this. It will be much more like students are able to apply quantitative analysis to a, you know, a wide range of topics. And so they're trying to have the objectives to be clear. And then students are allowed to show competency at varying points in the semester. So they, so, you know, in a traditional grading scenario, you have students who maybe start off slow and they don't do so well on the first couple of projects or first couple of assignments or assessments. And those really weigh the students' grades down. You would right. say that it, would, it would make it like seem like an anchor. And one of the, the good things about BBL is that students aren't tracked or aren't held down by that. If it is a, a not yet in early in the semester, they're able to come back later on and they are able to show that they're competent later on in the semester. The, the previous not getting there doesn't hold them down. Mm. It is a way for them to say like, oh, here's my feedback about this. I didn't get it the first two, three times, but on the last time, maybe the last two times, I was able to show that I am competent at it. Mm. And what, what, we, what we're hoping for is that the transparency in what students are working on, as well as the very intensive formative feedback, um, allows students to say, like, oh, I didn't get it the first time, but now I know what, what I'm going to hope to, how I'm going to hope to apply it for the next time. And so I think those are the, the big hopes. I would have to say that I am not the the best um, person to ask about this. I just I would say that my level of understanding is at the novice to very inter, very low intermediate level. Um, so I would just just want to put that asterisk by it that you know we have a few classes that are CDL classes in the science department. I have not taught any of those classes just yet. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested to see. Um, how we are able to, you know, kind of bring in a lot of the, you know, science uh, topics and the the deep learning that we're hoping, and how we can really seamlessly integrate that with the CDL language. Um, and so we we actually brought in some folks that uh, from Grinnell College and Bowdoin College, uh, very progressive, kind of nationally known uh, professors to try to look at our CDL program and look at our science classes to see. Um, you know, what's going well, what could be worked on. And, and so we're, we're kind of sifting through that information and that, um, that those observations just try to pull out what we are hoping is going to really endure and, mm. and kind of move us forward. Yeah, that's, thank you, Dan. That's, that's so fascinating. I, I think one of the really provocative parts of, of this for me is in, in terms of time that, you know, I think back to my time when I was a Ponoho student um, back in the seventies and that, you know, it, had I been able to move uh, at a pace of my own choosing where I was 
knocking off those competencies, if you will. Um, you know, I think that in certain respects, especially if it had been in project-based learning constructs, I, I would have quote unquote graduated early. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there were, there were a lot of things I could have taken care of pretty quickly. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that idea that we give kids not that, that we don't necessarily look at CBL as like, this is how we can help kids who struggle ultimately feel like they can be competent in the end, but it's also about the kids who just like move through things quickly and then want to move on to other things, right? That, that's intriguing yes. to me. It is. That, that is actually a great point that I'm really glad you brought up. I, that is, you know, we have some students who are ready to fly. They have, they've already probably dealt with a lot of the content and ideas in the class and they would achieve competency very early on. And so then you've got to ask the question, like, what's next for them? Like, what, how can we serve those students better? How can we open up educational opportunities that are, you know, that, that are going to challenge them in ways that, that maybe aren't appropriate for the rest of the class. Maybe there's only a few students who are, you know, ready to fly that fast and that high at that moment. Right. Um, and so we should provide some, some opportunities for them. I agree. That's a great yeah. point. And we're not judging kids as better or, or not better. It's not that at all. It's just simply more individualized. Here's, here's Johnny and he, he's moving in this direction and here's, you know, Kavika and he's moving in that direction and, and it just creates a more individualized path for them. It's very, Absolutely. very, very intriguing. Um, and I'm glad that Ponoho is part of that conversation is pushing that conversation so that everybody in Hawaii will have a chance to, you know, to gain from your experience on campus. Um, so sp speaking of, um, Dan, I found um, a super cool video posted to Vimeo by uh, the Community Works Institute in which you, <laughs> it's a 12-minute video, or no, no, it's, it's a five-minute video, um, in which you talked about professional learning communities and relationships. And you talked about a guy named Jim and the way your two education planets really existed in two very different universes. And I think, Dan, my question here is about professional learning communities and ways that you think our public, private, and charter school educators maybe almost like a co-op, might become each other's source of development, of coaching, of mentoring, and guidance? Like, are we on that path? Can Are we building our collective capacity here in Hawaii and, and maybe not needing to, and this is cliche, pay the big bucks to the outside experts? That's a great question. I think that there are pockets of this happening. I am embarrassed to say that I am not a great example of creating professional learning communities outside of the community that I currently work in. Um, and I should, I, I really would love that. I, I do enjoy the crowdsourcing of these huge topics and how can we work together and consistently work together, not like a one-off um, or once every semester type of a scenario. Mm -hmm. um, we, I would say that I'm doing a terrible job with this and I would like to improve. I do see that the, that there are opportunities to come together, but we don't have to bring in, you know, Daniel Pink or someone to come in and, and, yep. and bring, be our, I mean, Daniel Pink's awesome. I don't want to disparage him at all. I think that he's a fantastic speaker and who I'd love to just to see speak again. But I, I think that I could probably learn a ton from, um, you know, from, 
public school kindergarten teachers um, and you know community college uh, professors uh, and anyone in between. Everyone, I, I don't know. I just I like sitting down together to figure out mm-hmm. what we have in common, how people are solving problems, and how people are helping students get to the the next level, whatever that next level might be. Maybe it's first grade. Maybe it's to have a great job in a, in a trade career. Or maybe it's getting a research position mm-hmm. as a postdoc, you know, in Iowa. So mm-hmm. I just, I think that we owe it to each other to do it. I just haven't done it yet, Josh. Mm-hmm. I don't have any great excuses beyond uh, just trying to manage my own mm-hmm. uh, work-life balance. I think, Dan, what really, what really jumped out at me when I was watching that short video was where you were talking about, you know, this conversation with Jim and, and he mentioned something about like the kids go outside to, you know, feed the cows or, or the goats or something like that. And, and your thought was like, wow, that doesn't happen at where I teach, you know, and I, I, I love that moment. I absolutely love that moment. Like you, you, what, what did you think about that moment? Oh my goodness. That was literally 10 years ago. Uh, so that's what I was chuckling before. That was, a at a, at a, uh, community works Institute, uh, service learning workshop in, uh, Burlington, Vermont. So it was this really cool spot to be in. And we had educators from all over the country, but mainly from the Northeast. And a lot of them were from the rural areas of Vermont. And I was blown away at uh, the conditions, meaning like just the changes that they have compared to the differences that they have compared to where I teach. You know, we teach in a very urban setting um, and the, the smallness of some of their classes and smallness of some of their schools and their direct content, sorry, their direct contact with the content, which might have been literally animal husbandry or learning about ecology through uh, farming or through, you know, these composting systems that they developed, that was for me eye-opening. Where it wasn't, it wasn't an extension of their education. It was their education. It wasn't like how can we integrate this? It was just it was, it just was their 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 system of education, um, and it wasn't a traditional school. I think some of the the, the teachers that we were working with were working with students who were at risk. Um, and others were kind of a more traditional school where they had, you know, gardens that were infused as part of their, um, part of their curriculum. So what I was thinking at that time, a decade ago was how do I bring some of these elements of integration back to an urban setting, um, where we have, you know, a hundred students a piece and how do we make what feels really small and intimate accessible for a larger number of students. Wow, that's And that's awesome. a, an ongoing question that I'm still, still battling through currently. But there you have it. I mean, out of that conversation came something just absolutely huge. Um, it's it's yeah. an incredible concept. You know, Dan, If I mean, who am I? I? I often say that and I often tell myself, Josh, don't be stupid and naive. But, you know, this idea just popped into my head while you were while you were addressing this question that, you know, if you, and this is just a suggestion, I know this sounds very weird to be making a suggestion to you, but, you know, if you were to put together a public-private charter and even homeschool study group around your Schools of the Future presentation from last October, that would be fruitful. 
because what <clears> you're <throat> what you're dealing with in that presentation is absolutely crucial, crucial stuff. Um, and that if there was this little study group of people from across all the sectors that would have a chance to address some of those findings, then it wouldn't feel like you went to a conference, you watered some plants, and then the plants went home and, you know, kind of died because there wasn't any more water after that. And that's my hope for the future is that here in Hawaii and maybe even beyond, there will be these opportunities to to you know develop a legion of educators who are continually talking with each other and crowdsourcing that was the word you used i love that word you know crowdsourcing professional development with each other so you know who knows we'll see <laughs> yes and i think that i think that what we have to do is make that so it doesn't feel like work like where it feels like it's mm-hmm. a Right. Rejuvenation, where it feels like it's 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 actually a time that is time efficient, where you use it, and then it makes your other time where you're working, um, you know, you are a better utilizer of your time because you've learned from them, right. and you're a better you know steward of, of student of students. And so, yes, I, I think that initially is, is, a, is a really good idea, and you know, people have actually. It was a very small presentation. I don't want to. I don't want to make anything like it was this grand thing. It was, you know, I had a, an audience of roughly twenty-five people, so it was pretty small. But people have reached out about it, and they uh, they do want to talk about it. And I, you know, we 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 have discussed it post conference. So that's actually not mm-hmm. a, not a um, an out not an outlandish idea. So thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Dan, we we've actually come down to the final question here. This is amazing. It's shot by like it was two minutes. Um, so Dan, generally, I I end these episodes with a question about what school could be, but <clears throat> these are edgy times. <clears throat> Excuse me. These are these are edgy times. So I'm I'm going to end with an edgy question here. Um, so you know. I'm, I'm just a former teacher doing a podcast about education. I work retail at Apple. Um, so what do I know? But I am in a lather, Dan, about the opportunity cost of continuing to educate our kids in the same way that it's been done since the 1800s. The, the thought of kids being told over 12 years or longer what they have to learn gets me a little riled up, frankly. Um, and I honestly think if we had reinvented learning back in the 70s and 80s, much in the way described in the article that you shared with me titled Beyond the Classroom, we would we would have, you know, solved the pandemic uh, already. Uh, we would have solved deep divisions within our culture in this country. Kids would have solved these issues and and maybe even climate change already decades ago. So, all right, I'm going to step off the soapbox now so that you can just react to that and, and add your two cents to it. I think that education is just like all of us. I think we're a work in progress. I think my students are a work in progress. I think I'm a work in progress. I think our schools are a work in progress. I think that we are getting better and better at what we're doing and I think that it's the hardest challenge that we have. I remember talking with a new teacher a few years ago about, you know, education being such a complex challenge to try to figure out. Um, 
even harder than going to the moon. You know, we, we figured out how to go to the moon. We did that in 1969. We landed people on the moon, brought them back safely. And we have not figured out how to educate every kid in this country, every child in this country. I think that we are a work in progress that's getting better and better. And I think that we are what I see in, so I work at a very old, very uh, traditional institution, but what I see is I see progress on every grade level. I, I see my own children going through this. And I see my, my students going through this where they have a variety of choice, whether it's within a class that they have to take or the classes that they get to take. They can choose to take coding or art or what kind of music, and then they get to choose in those classes what kinds of projects that they work on. Um, they are, I think, especially at you know certain grade levels, doing excellent work with giving kids choices. And I think that that's part of the equation. Um, I don't know the other parts of the equation, to be honest with you, but I think that providing students choice and opportunities to fail and then kind of rebuild themselves are going to be critical. I agree that we should not have students that are kind of lockstep learning all the same things, all at the same pace. At the same time, I do want students to have a common experience. So we don't have students coming out of high school not knowing much about either world history, current events, uh, or key scientific challenges of our day. Um, I am kind of struck by uh, the challenge of trying to do it all, of trying to have students with massive amounts of choice while also making sure that students come to be scientifically literate and come to be able to, you know, figure out whether a source is going to be a valid source or not a valid source. The, the challenge is incredibly large and I think we're making progress. So I would say that it's going to be a continual battle. And I, I would say that we are improving and it's not going to be easily measured. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not going to be fixed in a few years. It's, it's one of those things that's going to be a constant mm -hmm. evolution that's going to be revisited and revised and improved on and debated on. I think for all time. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I'm just hopeful that we continue to attract caring people who are flexible in their thinking and who are lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of my mentors here, Darcy Imes, uh, she used to be the Academy Science Department head. Her, one of her big things was trying to look for teammates in the science department who were learners and doers um, and not to have people who have a fixed mindset, who like, who know. Mm. And I think that for me, that's always stuck with me. And so when I you know, look out to, to bring in people to the science department, I am looking for people who are open, who are flexible and caring individuals mm. who love science and want to share that, that love of science with students. Um, and that's, you know, I think it's going to be a, an endeavor that we go through for, for years to come. And I don't know if there's, you know, if there's one, actually, I would just like to argue that there's probably not going to be one thing. It's not going to be PBL alone. It's not going to be CBL alone. It's not going to be mastery transcript alone. I think it's going to be pockets of areas where they find that work in certain regions, because what works 
mm. on the North Shore might not work in Hawaii Kai, might not work um, out in Nanakuli. So mm. I just I think that we're going to find areas that are good, or we're going to find strategies that work in specific areas that are not going to be universally adoptable. And I would love it if it was universally adoptable. I just don't think that that is the, mm. the system, the complexity that we have to address. I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be one size fits all by any means. Yeah. You know, that's that well said, Dan. I, I want to give a shout out. One of the one of the people that you interviewed for your Schools of the Future presentation was Marisa Proctor, who teaches um, literature, English literature and, and other language subjects at Punahou School. And she was a colleague of mine at La Pietra. I remember in 2016 when she saw the film Most Likely to Succeed, she was sparked by the idea of a public exhibition of learning. And so she immediately implemented something like that in one of her English courses. And sure enough, there was a massive turnout of parents and community members who came to see, you know, the student work. And and I love the idea that she's part of that work of work in progress that you're referencing, right? There's so many people who are trying different things and are learning from them and failing and learning. And and like her, everybody to co- collectively together is is a work in progress. You, you, you feel good about that idea? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I think that, I just think that it, it frees you from so much by saying that this is a work in progress. As an adult, as a professional, as an educator, as a student, as a friend, everything. I think that saying that you are a work in progress frees you from so much uh, worry about that you have to be there or perfect. Or I, I just I think that if you take a learner's mindset and you adopt that, I think that there's so much that can be gained. And you have I think there's a, also an intellectual humility that comes along with mm-hmm. taking that mindset. Right. That you know I, I think that it just is for me it, it, it's one of my teaching philosophies that I always talk about on, on open house night um, is that we are all works in progress and I remind parents that they are also works in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think that a lot of us did not reach our potential when we were in grade school or high school, you know, and I look at our, our, our former president, Barack Obama, who is not a stellar student when right. he was here. And I like to me, that's like he was a work in progress and right. he still is a work in progress. And I look at all of us in that light and mm-hmm. it just, it, to me, it just speaks to, you know, continual learning and an mm-hmm. openness to, to change and to adapt and to kind of be accepting of others. So anyway, that's yeah. just my, my own personal philosophy on it. Right. So, so Dan, I want to leave you with this one final thought and have you react to it. Um, and, and by no means am I, am I expressing it to put pressure on you in any way, but sure. I'm, I'm so moved by what you and all of your science colleagues are doing to help kids become scientists and, and scientific thinkers and, and good community members. And it feels like, Dan, the, the fate of the world literally rests on the shoulders of you and your fellow science teachers and your science students because of the, the train wreck that is climate change that's coming at us. And so uh, I, I feel hopeful in this moment thinking about 
all of you science teachers out there who are developing this generation of kids who are going to help us to deal with that. And I just wanted to share that thought with you and, and have you react to that. That is a huge uh, responsibility that I feel, uh, especially teaching the environmental science class. I know that my colleagues feel the same way that we have to do better with scientific education. We have even of people who are going to be non-scientists or especially of people who are going to be non-scientists. Um, that is a mammoth responsibility that we take so seriously. And my hope is that as the generation um, is, you know, the younger generations age into voters and then to, um, you know, adult citizens that they are going to take with them the seriousness of this situation that is, it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of like dumbstruck to come up with, with words that, that, that express how difficult and catastrophic it is currently and will be in the future. We don't have to look any further than the the west coast of the United States right now that is literally on fire um, to see how serious it is. And our students are not blind to this. And I think it's our responsibility to to make that to make those connections as crystal clear as possible so that they can be they can be the adults that we weren't. They can be the adults that that our generation have not moved on in terms of action about climate change. And so my hope is that as more and more educated, scientifically educated folks come up, uh, they will, the, the tide will shift. I think the tide is shifting. I just, at the moment, I just feel so sad about the scenario and a little bit gloomy, um, but hoping that, that we can shift the tide on a massive scale. Um, and maybe, maybe, uh, you know, the seriousness of the pandemic along with the seriousness of you know, the West Coast fires or droughts or heat waves, maybe these things will open our eyes so that we can make changes that are going to help mitigate the future. Because, you know, we might be able to handle two degrees C, but we probably can't handle six degrees C. And, you know, if we continue to do nothing, then we're heading down a really dangerous path. Fantastic. Well said, Dan. Um, so, Dan Gaudiano, it has been such a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you for being a guest on the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Josh, thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful to talk with you. Um, I hope that uh, we get a chance to talk together soon and maybe form our own PLC. Okay, that sounds great. You and your family stay safe. You too, Josh. Thank you. Okay. And now it's time for a listener review. This one comes from hawaiiweblog.com and is titled Inspiring Stories of Innovative Educators. Hawaii Weblog describes this series as, quote, personable, relatable, accessible conversations with teachers on the front lines of a revolution in public, private, and charter school education. Josh mixes fun classroom anecdotes with big, powerful questions about what it means to foster thoughtful, creative, talented students. This podcast will give you hope for the next generation, unquote. We appreciate your reviews and will continue to give you hope for the next generation. If you like this series, please give us a rating and review at your favorite podcast store. 
The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Until the next episode, please stay safe, wear your masks, keep socially distant, and be kind to one another. See you soon.